And so on Monday, last Monday, it was Betsy's birthday, and uh, so uh, we, whoop, we, uh, we went to uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It's a hopping place. But uh, actually, we, we went to visit the Flight 93 Memorial, which is near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And uh, so I want to just share a little bit about that. So on September 11, 2001, at uh, 8.42 a.m., United Flight 30, uh, sorry, 93 took off from Newark, New Jersey. And at about 9.28 a.m., over, actually over the skies over Cleveland, uh, for Al-Qaeda terrorists, um, took control of the plane, hijacked it, uh, killed uh, crew members, including the two pilots, and uh, they took control of the plane and headed towards Washington, D.C., presumably to crash into either the, the Capitol building or to into the White House. Uh, and so while they hijacked the plane, many of the, the crew and the passengers uh, huddled in the back of the plane and created a plan to take the plane back over from the terrace. And at the memorial, it's really it's a fabulous um, tribute and a fabulous well done. It's not commercialized at all. Uh, and But part of it is there's a walkway that's on the exact path that the plane flew. You know, from the black box, they know exactly where the plane flew and obviously where it crashed. And so um, Betsy and I walked on that pathway and... And then we saw the field where the, the plane, the plane basically came straight down into the ground. Um, and so we looked at that field, and as we were doing that, I, I wondered what, what was going through the minds of the crew and the passengers on that plane. And I'm sure they had all kinds of thoughts, but maybe in some way, collectively, uh, they, were, they were thinking, you know, today we're going to die. We're probably going to die trying to take over an airplane in mid-flight, and nobody knows how to fly it. Uh, we're probably going to die today, but no one on the ground is. We won't let the terrorists accomplish their mission. And so at 9.58, the counterattack began they stormed the cockpit, um, and the, the terrorists in the cockpit uh, crashed the plane into the ground. We know it was 9.58 uh, that the counterattack began because uh, the operator that was talking to Todd Beamer, a passenger on the plane, heard him say, Are you guys ready? Let's roll. And so... The last act of the <clears throat> crew and the passengers of Flight 93 was really a rescue mission. They knew they weren't really saving themselves, but they knew that by surrendering, surrendering themselves, surrendering their lives, those on the ground would be saved. So I was thinking all, all this as we... Uh, spent Betsy's birthday in Shanksville, PA. And I was thinking, you know, the actions of the crew that day and the passengers on Flight 93, it reminded me of what we had talked about a little bit 
uh, on Sunday last week about the Apostle Paul, how, how he had a rescuer's heart. And what did Paul say in Romans chapter 9, verse 3? He, say, he said, For I could wish that I myself were accused and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was brokenhearted that other Israelites, so many of them had rejected Jesus, and he knew that because they rejected Jesus, they were destined to be separated from God forever. And, and so Paul was willing to do whatever it would take, even himself cut off from his relationship with Christ, so that he could point his kinsmen to Jesus. See, Paul's life had been radically transformed through his relationship with Jesus. God had chosen him, and then Paul had surrendered to Jesus, choosing Jesus. So God chose him, and he chose God, and then God transformed him into a rescuer. And so this was our key point last week in Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 18. God has chosen us, and we can choose him and become rescuers. So when we turn from our sins, when we repent, that's the religious word for that, turning from our sins, we surrender our lives to Jesus, we receive eternal life, we're transformed, our lives are changed, our perspective changes, and we get to be rescuers. Just like Sharon got to play the tambourine today, we get to be rescuers in God's kingdom. And as we follow Jesus, more and more, we develop rescuer hearts. We, we think in this way more and more. I'm going to live forever. And so in this life, every moment, with all my strength, no one's going to miss Jesus on my watch. Not today, Satan. Not on my watch. The devil will not accomplish his mission. Your Romans chapter 9 is very hard to uh, understand. It's very hard to preach. And because there's hard questions. What was the question we had to answer last year, did, uh, last Sunday? Did, did God choose that some would not be saved? That's the question we had to answer last week. This week, we have a hard question to answer too. Maybe you've heard this question before. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 9, verse 19 through 33. And the question is this. Maybe you've heard it before. Why do bad things happen to good people? And we get that question, don't we? We understand that question. Why did 40 people on a Tuesday morning getting on an airplane to go home or on a business trip or on vacation... Why did they get murdered by four terrorists? Why do bad things happen to good people? But we also have those things in our own lives and the lives of the people we love. Why do bad things happen to good people? I think the question gets asked in different ways too. Some people might say, how can a loving God let bad things happen to good people? Have you heard that? Variant, Or how about this? Why does God allow evil in the world? 
Why doesn't God just fix it all? Paul asks the question in a little different way, and it's a little harder to understand, and that's why we're going to talk about it today. But he asks the question this way in Romans 9, verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, so Paul's talking, he's writing in the book of Romans, and he, he's discussing things, and then he says, okay, now you're going to say, ask this question of me. So he shares the question. You will say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault for who can resist his will? Now just before verse 19 is verse 17 and 18. You guys kind of knew that, right? 17 and 18 comes before 19. Okay, and so this is what it says. Verse 17, for the scriptures say to Pharaoh, so Paul's pointing back to the Old Testament. He's actually pointing back to Exodus chapter 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now the implication, (coughs) the implication here from Paul is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then used Pharaoh's hard heart for his own purposes. Okay, that's the implication. Hard, hard thing to swallow, hard thing to understand. So we're going to dig in deep here. So we could ask Paul's question this way. How can Pharaoh be blamed for his sin if God has hardened his heart? How can Pharaoh be blamed for his sin if God has hardened his heart? Okay, let's answer that question. We need to go back to Exodus chapter 9. I don't have a page number, sorry. It's near the front of the Bible. So what was God's purpose in Pharaoh's life? Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. Well, God would use Pharaoh's life to show his power and to spread his name. Because of what God would do in Pharaoh's life, God's power would be revealed and the world would know who he was. And so this is what Exodus 9 verse 16 says, and it says the same thing Romans 9 verse 17 says. But for this purpose I have raised you up. So, but for this purpose I, God, have raised you, Pharaoh, up to show you, Pharaoh, my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, isn't that the same purpose God has for us? That our lives would reveal God's power and his name would be made known through our lives? That sounds like a pretty good purpose, right? That that as I live my life, God's power would be known and his name would be proclaimed and more and more people would know Jesus because of what God is doing in me and through me. Now, Pharaoh had made a choice about how he would live his life. He was rejecting God and making himself his own God, and he was holding God's people in slavery. And so God says this to Pharaoh, verse 17. He says, you, Pharaoh, are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Pharaoh is keeping God's people in slavery. Now, we need to remember the context of Exodus chapter 9, God was bringing these plagues down on Egypt. 
God was using these plagues on Egypt so that Pharaoh would go, okay, I'm tired of God's power. I'm going to let God's people go. So my life and my kingdom is not destroyed. And so in Exodus 9, we find ourselves on uh, about to have the seventh plague. So there's been six plagues and Pharaoh's still got a hard heart. He's like, okay, I see God's power, but too bad. I'm the man. I'm really more powerful than God, even though he's wiping out <laughs> my country. And so Pharaoh had repeatedly chosen to reject God. But now listen to what God says. Verse 18, God says, Behold, about this time tomorrow, I'll cause heavy, very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hell when the hell falls on them. So what is God doing? He's offering Pharaoh and all the Egyptians who are far from God a way of escape, a way of escape from the plague of hell. Well, isn't that a picture of God's grace? God was offering life to the Egyptians even though they didn't deserve it. God was offering Pharaoh a choice. Trust me and save your people, or reject me and see your na nation destroyed by this horrible hailstorm. What did Pharaoh choose? Well, he didn't choose God. He, choosed him he chose himself. Now, some people did choose God. In verse 20, it says, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And of course, they were all uh, killed. So we see in Exodus 9 that Pharaoh had a hard heart, but he also had an opportunity to choose grace, to, receive, to choose to receive God's grace. Pharaoh had a choice to choose or reject God's grace. Pharaoh had a choice to make. Choose God's grace or reject it. So now we go back to Romans 9 and Paul's question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? How can Pharaoh be blamed for his sin? If God hardened his heart. So from our brief study of Exodus 9, we can conclude that the answer to the question is that God offered Pharaoh grace, but Pharaoh rejected God's offer. Pharaoh did not choose God, even though God chose him. And this is a good and sufficient answer for the question. How can Pharaoh be blamed for his sin if God hardened his heart? God extended grace and Pharaoh chose to reject it. But this is not how Paul answers the question. 
We have a different answer. And so, when there's one answer in the Bible, and there's another answer in the, Bi answer in the Bible, is one answer wrong, and the other right? Or are they both right? And we need to figure out, or we, we don't, we, and we can't figure out the mystery of it. And so this is what Paul says in verse 20. So the question is, paraphrasing verse 19 how can pharaoh be blamed for his sin if god hardened his heart and this is what paul says he says but who are you O man to answer back to god i'm thinking of being a parent well i still am but when my kids were little i probably said stuff like that uh who are you to tell me what you should do any moms or dads there with me? Yeah, yeah. I certainly, when I was a kid, I heard stuff like that. Uh, no, you're going to do it my way, Tim. Usually they threw my middle name in there too. All right. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for, God, for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul does not say that Pharaoh did have a choice to receive or reject God's grace. He's not disputing it, but he doesn't say that. Instead, Paul says that finite human beings may not rebellious, rebellious, rebelliously question an infinite God's ways. God is the potter. We are the clay. And that should be a good picture for us to understand, right? The clay has no say in what happens to it. It's all up to the potter. Think, has anybody ever done pottery? I know you have, Diane. Yeah, pottery, right? You throw the lump of clay on there and you, the, the wheel spins and you do, your, you do your thing, right? And out comes a work of art, right? Not every time. Okay, well, mostly. For God, though, it'd always be, right? And, and, what if all of a sudden the clay said, hey, ow, that hurts. I don't want to be a bowl. I want to be a beer mug. <laughs> be like, yeah, the clay's talking to me. God is the potter. We are the clay. All right, so I want to read you a quote. Uh, I just thought this was good, and rather than me try and change the words around, uh, I would just read this, okay, about these verses I've just read from a, uh, the English Standard Version Study Bible. It says this, The honorable and dishonorable vessels in this context, these verses, represent those who are saved and unsaved. Paul affirms that humans are guilty for their sin, and he offers no resolution as to how this fits with divine sovereignty. Thanks a lot for that, Paul. He does insist that God ordains all that happens 
even though God himself does not sin and is not morally responsible for sin. See, I told you Romans chapter 9 is, is really hard. It goes on, God created a world in which both his wrath and his mercy would be displayed. Indeed, his mercy shines against the backdrop of his just wrath, showing thereby that the salvation of any person is due to the marvelous grace and love of God. If this is difficult to understand, it's because people mistakenly think God owes them salvation. So what is the answer to the question, how can Pharaoh be blamed for his sin if God hardened his heart? Answer number one, Exodus 9 tells us that Pharaoh had a choice, receive or reject God's grace. And Romans 9 tells us that God is sovereign. He is the potter, and we are the clay. He does what he wants, and we have no power to stop him. And those two answers give us a mystery. But Paul does something very interesting in verse 25. See, in our sinfulness, let me back up. So in our sinfulness, we're not wired for someone else to be sovereign over our lives, are we? And so we may not like Paul's answer. What do you mean God is the potter and I'm just a lump of clay? That's not fair. After all, even lumps of clay should have rights, right? All of us lumps of clay need to unite and demand our rights. By the way, this is a side note, but perhaps we live in a culture where we spend probably too much time demanding our rights rather than spending our time in selfless, sacrificial service to those who need Jesus. So we have the answer from Paul. He says God is the potter and we are the clay, but this is what he does next. He immediately points to who the potter is. Okay, God is the potter, I'm the clay, God does what he wants, I've got nothing to say. Ooh, that's almost a wrap there. And, and, uh, uh, but I want to know then who the potter is that's sovereign over my life. So Paul tells us, verse 25 and 26, lots of references to Old Testament. We can't, we can't dig into the details, but listen to what it says. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people... I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So God extends his invitation to those who are not his people and to those who are unlovable. And this is grace. God offers his favor to those who do not deserve it. This is the potter Paul is talking about. The potter gets to do whatever he wants to do, whatever he wants to do to all the lumps of clay, but the potter is a gracious potter, and he wants every lump of clay to become a beautiful work of art. God wants all of you to be beautiful works of art. 
God wants all of us to choose to receive his grace so we can be beautiful works of art, so we can live the life that God has for us. But Paul's not finished. He goes on, not only is the potter gracious, but he's also merciful. Verse 27 in Isaiah, another reference to the Old Testament, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the members... Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So what's, what's he saying there? The prophet Isaiah prophesied that all of Israel... All the Israelites deserved God's wrath. But God would not give Israel what she deserved. Instead, God would show his mercy and spare a remnant of the people of Israel. Aren't we glad that God is merciful to us? He does not give us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. If I show you mercy, I don't give you what you deserve. So somebody cuts me off on the highway, what they deserve is not what they get because I'm merciful sometimes. So the potter is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, he's patient with us. He gives us time and opportunity after opportunity to turn to him in surrender and repentance. So the, so the potter is sovereign. The potter is gracious. The potter is merciful. What about us? The lumps of clay. Verse 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling block, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, believes in Jesus, will not be put to shame. Paul tells us that it's by faith in Jesus we attain righteousness. When we have a believing, trusting, faithful faith, we are righteous in God's eyes. He, we become his children. and We begin to live the life that God has for us. The righteous shall live by faith. God's people will experience the great adventure when we walk by faith and not by sight. So Paul tells us the righteous shall live by faith. And then he also tells us we do not earn righteousness by our works. God does not choose us because of our works. Can we wrestle with that? Doesn't it seem more to make more sense that, that God would make us righteous through our works? We would earn more of God's favor through our works? For example, what if, what if your favorite, well, a little, a little backstory, I'm going to talk about the NFL, but 
I don't know anything about the NFL, so I had to Google it. So I was going to talk about the NFL draft, so I wanted to see when the, the draft was, and so I Googled it, and, and I found out it was like a month ago. <laughs> so anyway, so kind of threw that idea out of the window, but uh, what if the next draft, 2020, what if your favorite M- NFL team drafted their players based on how well they brushed their teeth or what kind of car they drove? or something equally ridiculous. What would you think about that? That would be what? Crazy? Stupid? Yeah, it'd be ignorant, it'd be terrible, it'd be all kinds of words and some you can't say in church. And so uh, you draft football players based on how well they play football. And so shouldn't God pick people the same way? Shouldn't he pick people based on, I don't know, how much Bible knowledge they have or how much they pray or how loving they are to others? Doesn't that make more sense? Maybe, but if God picked his family like that, none of us would be in it. And so no, that wouldn't be good for God to do it that way. Instead, the potter invites the lumps of clay to be his works of art. So we live in a world where evil exists, and we see and feel the effects, and we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? God is the potter. And we are the clay. The potter is gracious and merciful. And he invites us to be his so he can turn us into a beautiful work of art. See the potter's grace on the cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That put into motion the potter beginning to shape us into a beautiful work of art. So that we know in the midst of the evil in this world that God extends grace to everyone and we can receive that grace by responding to him in believing, trusting, faithful faith. We can see that God is choosing us and so we can choose him. We can surrender to him. We can choose God's grace by responding in faith. And when we do, we become part of God's work. We become part of God's work. Jesus said this when he and his disciples passed by a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's that question, right? Why did this bad thing happen to this good man? I mean, he wasn't even born yet, and he's, he's just when he's born, he's blind. Why did that bad thing happen to him? And listen to Jesus' answer. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, Jesus changed the focus from the clay to the potter. Jesus said, I'm going to do a mighty work in this man. You see a blind man. I see a beautiful work of art that I will use 
so that my power is declared and my name is spread. So, our circumstances, the bad, the bad ones, the bad things that are happening in our lives, they do not define us. Instead, who defines us? The potter. Amen. The potter defines who we are. Our circumstances do not define us. The potter defines who we are. And so then after Jesus answered his disciples, their question about who sinned, the blind man or his parents, he said this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And so this is where our faith takes us. When we receive God's grace and we respond to God's grace in faith, our faith has to take us somewhere. And this is where our faith takes us to do the work, to work the works. I like how it says that. You know, work the plan, plan the work, work the plan. Work the work that God calls us to. And that work is his rescue mission. We get to join him in his rescue mission. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been rescued. You live forever. And now you can spend your life helping others find Jesus. This is where our faith takes us. So God chooses us. We get to choose him. We get to receive his grace and respond in faith. And then we get to work the works. Not so he loves us more. He can't love us any more than he did on the cross. But so others can know his love. We work the work. We work the works of the one who's called us. Let's pray. Lord, I, I believe that we are all thankful that our circumstances do not define who we are, but that you define who we are. And your desire is that we would be a beautiful work of art. Lord, you are at, at work sculpting us, shaping us, using our, our bad and our good circumstances in our lives to make us the people you've designed us to be. And so, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We thank you that you are a gracious and merciful potter who is sovereign over all things. And so, Lord, we trust you. We trust that if you're going to make us into a beautiful work of art, it is going to happen because you are sovereign. And so, Lord, we thank you that you chose us. And, Lord, this week we choose you. This week we walk by faith. This week we do the work. We work the works of him who called us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Subscribe to the podcast now. And for more info, including sermon outlines, visit our website at www.kurtlandchristian.org.